0: had to pick your favorite type of literature, how many of you would say it's a genealogy? Probably not many of us, maybe not any of us. And sometimes we're tempted for that reason to skip over what it says in the text, but we should not do that. When you, uh, If you look at your bulletin, you see that I titled this sermon, A Genealogy of Hope. You say, what does hope have to do with the genealogy? Many times, if you hear a sermon on this passage, or read a commenter in this passage, it'll, it'll focus on the phrase that's repeated most often, which is, and he died. And that's certainly something that we don't want to minimize the significance of, because it shows the connection with Genesis 3 and what's going on now here in this chapter that being said there are several examples in this chapter that are signs of hope that show that God's plan is still moving forward despite the presence of sin, despite the reality of death and despite all of the upheaval that we're going to see even in the coming chapters and so I want us to not miss the hope that we see in this chapter Uh, and be overwhelmed by those other realities. So if you're not already there, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 5. And in Genesis 5, we see uh, a description or a a comment at the beginning of verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. We see these, these markers in the book of Genesis that go before all of the different sections that come right after them. And these sort of sort of break things up between the original account of creation to now the account of Adam. We're going to see the account of some of the people of Abraham's family. And so we'll see this phrase come up. And it sort of points to what is going to come next. And it summarizes creation in verses 1 and 2. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. And so the chapter starts out going back to the days of creation, reminding people God's original plan and purpose, and, and sort of raising the question of, did what God intended to happen, was that going to happen or not? So look at verse 3. Adam became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. What echoes of the creation account do we see here? after his kind, in his own image, naming. We see a connection back to God's original purpose and design. These were good things, and at least in this form, they were continuing. And so as we consider this even today, when children are born, when they look like one or both of their parents, sometimes strongly like one or both of their parents, when they are given a name, these things too ought to remind us of God's original purpose and design in creation, that it was good, and that elements of it are still happening today, despite the curse of sin, despite the realities of death, despite all of these other things going on. We see... This formula, this pattern continuing throughout the chapter with a few significant exceptions. So and so has a son, continues for this long afterward, has other sons and daughters, and then we come to verse 5 and he died. Seth, 105 years, father of Enosh, 807 years, other sons and daughters, the total was 912 years, and he died. This pattern continues throughout this section of the genealogy. There are a couple of different things that are issues that are raised in connection with the genealogy. One is, is it a chronological succession? That is, does Adam, and then Seth, and then Enosh, and then Kenan, like, are they in the right order? Or are there gaps? Are there people missing from this list? And I think the answer to that question is no. There is not room for gaps in this list. And so people who see in this section an opportunity to expand the history of mankind by tens of thousands of years or hundreds of thousands of years are probably misusing and not doing justice to the text. For example, is there room for inserting extra generations between Adam and Seth? No, we see very clearly from other passages it was Adam and then it was Seth and that same formula is continued throughout the chapter and so there's no reason to assume that there are gaps in this genealogy Uh, another question that is raised is whether the names of the people in this list have some sort of cryptic significance Uh, some people have looked at the idea of you know a name like adam that means ground or seth that means supplant or another name in this list that means suffering or Noah that means comfort, and, and you know if we stitch them all together, we'll come with this idea that there is, is one who's a descendant of one from the ground who's going to someday bring us comfort. The problem is that there's a little bit of rearranging an artistic license that arrives at that sort of a hidden message in the names of this text. Do the names have significance? Yes, God named Adam Adam because he was created from the ground. Seth was named Seth because even though he's not the firstborn, he was the heir, he was the godly line. So their names do have significance, but we should not look for hidden meanings in the text that would not have been clear to the original people and that take creative license in sort of arranging in a way that makes sense in English, which is not the language that this was originally written in. And so, in case you come across that idea in an article online or something like that, I just want to say. I don't think there's a good basis for thinking that idea. So there's not gaps, there's not rooms for hundreds of thousands of years, there's not some sort of hidden message in the text, and so then what is it illustrating? It's illustrating that God's plan and purpose is going forward, it's illustrating that the earth is being filled as uh, the descendants of Adam and Eve multiply, it's also highlighting notable exceptions to this typical pattern. For example, we come in verse 21 to Enoch. Enoch is described as walking with God. There are several other passages that refer to Enoch. A couple just list him by name. Uh, In the New Testament, there's a passage that speaks of him as a preacher of righteousness, as a prophet. And uh, there's also apocryphal literature, that is extra-biblical literature that claims to have been uh, written by one of the apostles, or that was written in the time period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. There's one of those that's named the Book of Enoch. Uh, and that gives us some interesting, but not really true, ideas connected with him. That being said, uh, in the New Testament, it does highlight one idea from the Book of Enoch that was true, that does correspond. That is, that he was a preacher of righteousness He prophesied that God's judgment was coming in the form of the flood, although he didn't go into all the specifics. And so the main thing that the text emphasizes here, though, is this. He walked with God. You remember at the end of chapter 4, verse 26, men began to call on the name of the Lord. And so there's this idea that there are godly people descended from Seth who are following God and seeking after him. There are ungodly people descended from Cain like uh, the Lamech of chapter 4 who is a murderer and boasts in his murdering and all of these sorts of things and so we're seeing this contrast. There are those who don't call upon the Lord, there are those who do call upon the Lord. Enoch was one of these who is noted as walking with God. What's the other notable thing about Enoch? Verse 24, he didn't die. Enoch was not for God took him. There's two examples of this in the Bible. One is Enoch, and the other is Elijah. Elijah was caught up into heaven in a fiery chariot. Uh, Enoch, it just simply says he was not, for God took him. Uh, Some people argue for Moses, but the passage about Moses clearly said God buried him in the mountains uh, near Canaan. So uh, Moses would not be one of these. So we see this. Uh, There's some speculation that the two witnesses of Revelation are Enoch and Elijah who come back and then die like everybody else and are brought back to life and resurrected. There's not really a strong biblical argument for that, but it's an interesting thing to contemplate. The The point of this, though, is this. He walked with God, and unlike all the others in this passage who died, he was not. God took him to be with him. Doesn't explain why God did that. Doesn't explain how God did that. Just simply states the fact. And then right after that, we see Methuselah, who is noted for being the one who lives the longest in this passage 969 years. Uh, some people see in his name an idea that. When he dies, it comes. That's one possible rendering of the meaning of his name. And if you total up the years, it appears that the flood takes place uh, immediately after the death of Methuselah. Again, uh, some slight degree of speculation, but something interesting to see, that none of these things were happening by accident, that God was carrying out all of these things. We come then to the other significant person at the end of the chapter, Lamech's son Noah. Now, this Lamech is a different Lamech. It's not the one who was the murderer of chapter 4. This one is a descendant of Seth. He calls his name Noah. Noah means rest. And verse 29, the word that's translated rest is possibly better rendered as comfort but they're trying to uh, have a a correlation between Noah, which means rest, and this one will give us rest. The question we have to ask ourselves is this. When he says, this one will give us rest from the toil of our hands, from the ground which the Lord has cursed, what is that? What is the rest? And was this a prophecy or just sort of an expectation that a father might have for his child? I think the answer is that it's not that Noah rediscovered how to grow a vineyard. Some people have put that forth as the rest from toils. Someone could grow a vineyard and for a while forget their troubles. I don't think that's the point of it. Uh, Significantly, because that incident is also connected with sin in the chapter that recounts it. So the rest, or the comfort that comes, according to this verse... I think is an expectation that there will be some relief from the curse of sin. I think there is a sense in which this is prophetic. How in or in what way did Noah give comfort or rest? Well, we're going to see in chapter 6 and verse 6 or verse 5 that every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. God was grieved. He was sorry that he made man on the earth. Verse 8 Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah is, in this sense, going to give rest or comfort that he was the one by whom God delivered and continued the human race, he and his family, when all around them were overcome and overwhelmed and saturated with wickedness. Noah was not the deliverer promised in Genesis 3. He was yet to come. But Noah did anticipate the deliverance that was to come and was a picture of God's deliverance. Um, We see some of the references to Peter in this uh, when he talks about Noah and the deliverance through the flood and all these sorts of things. There are parallels between God's sparing of the human race in the family of Noah in the ark and God's deliverance, ultimately, of the human race in the work of Christ. And so Noah is not the fulfillment of Genesis 3. Noah is not one who gets rid of the curse of sin, because what happens? People continue to die, people continue to have to work and toil, people continue to sin. But Noah does bring a temporary relief and comfort as God uses him to spare the human race in the ark through the flood. And so in that sense, the expectation of Lamech is fulfilled. Noah is 500 years old and becomes the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We have sort of a pause in the genealogy from Genesis 6 to 9. We don't, we don't pick up, and the days of Noah were so many, and he died until chapter 9. And so we're going to have this interlude about Noah, but we see the introduction of it at the beginning of chapter 6. And I think it's important to see to set alongside uh, Lamech's expectation and this idea of hope that we see in the genealogy. And so let's read down through verses 1 through 8. Now, it came about when men began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and afterward also, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. What does this section have to do with the previous section? There's the hope and the expectation that the process of having children, them being in one's image and being named would continue. We see that in the, in the description of Adam in the beginning of the chapter. There is a glimpse of the reward and blessing of following God in the person of Enoch, who is not because God takes him after he walks with God. There is an expectation that even in a world full of wickedness, there is at least a remnant of those who would follow God, Noah and his family, and we see an expectation of that in 529, And we see a a description of that in chapter 6 and verse 8. So what about the difficult bits in between, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7? Some people say this is the most difficult passage in the book of Genesis to understand. There are three common explanations for what is meant by this passage. The first is that angels came down to earth and took human wives and had giants as children. If that explanation gives you a little bit of hesitation, it might be because it has more in common with certain pagan myths, the legend of uh, Hercules, for example, than it does with anything else we see in the rest of Scripture. A second possibility is that the sons of God are not angels, but rather that they are human rulers, people of high repute, who, again, uh, have children who are uh, giants or who are at least uh, notable and, and uh, men who are recognized for their feats of bravery and strength and all of those sorts of things. Again, it doesn't really explain what the significance is of them being sons of God, And it doesn't explain why there is immediate punishment that comes after it. Because why is it a big deal if some people get married and have children who are famous? It it doesn't really explain it well. The third explanation, and I think the one that probably fits the text the best, although there are objections to it, is that the sons of God is a reference to the godly line of Seth. Sons of God, children of Seth. Daughters of men, descendants of Cain. While there has not been, at least recorded for us, a specific command that says, Children of Seth, don't marry children of Cain. What would be one of the reasons that they shouldn't do it? Because here are people who are calling on the name of the Lord, and here are people who are living sinfully and selfishly, and there ought to be a separation between those two groups of people, even as there was later commanded a separation in the law of Moses, between the people of Israel and the pagan Canaanites who surrounded them. Why else is a further argument for saying, taking the text in this way? Because the punishment, the description, the anger or sorrow of God is not directed toward angels, it's specifically directed toward men. Verse 5. The wickedness of man. Verse 6. God, the Lord was sorry that he had made man. Verse 7. The Lord said, I will blot out man. So if it was angels, it would seem that the text would indicate some sort of judgment for them. Well, then what do we do with passages in the New Testament that said that there are angels who are held in chains until the day of judgment because they did not keep their proper place? Well, not keeping their proper place could simply mean that they followed Satan in his rebellion and refused to do what God had called them, created them to do, right? it doesn't necessarily mean that they came down to earth and possessed people and had human children and all of these sorts of things. One other note, the word Nephilim uh, is used to describe people who are great. It occurs later on, and because it's used to describe people in um, the region of the Philistines, one of whom is Goliath, Sometimes there's perhaps a reading back of Goliath was a giant, so these people must have been giants, into the text. Essentially what we have here is just a transliteration of the Hebrew. It's not, this is what the Hebrew word means, it's just, let's make the Hebrew letters English letters and write them out. So Nephilim is not a translation, it's just like a a rewriting of the Hebrew in English letters. So what's going on there? Verse 4 says... These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So if we put that in context, what's going on? Men and women had children who were men who were um, famous, who were known for their great deeds, uh, who were most likely, in light of what we see in the next few verses, perhaps those who were cruel and Uh, notable for the wrong sorts of reasons, much like the Assyrians would be much later. The Philistines were also known for being harsh and cruel. And so that's where I think the connections between all these things comes in. The the connection is not, these were giants because angels and human women had these weird hybrid offspring. The connection is, God's people decided that, much like Adam and Eve said, this looks good, I'm not going to follow God, There were descendants of Seth who said, there's some daughters of Cain over there who are beautiful, and I don't care that they don't follow God. Let's go start a family with them. And what happened? Rather than, as some people might argue, this person's goodness transforming the wickedness of this person, and now everyone is following God, what happens in many other places in Scripture is, this person's wickedness draws this person into wickedness, and what's the overall result? Everyone is living wickedly with the exception of Noah and his family. We should also consider God's response here. God observes the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Can you think about that? What that would be like? You wake up and you start thinking about how you can do something that pleases yourself instead of pleasing God how you can hurt the people around you, how you can take advantage of people, how you can lie and cheat and steal and all of these other sorts of things. That's the only thing that you think about. And maybe you can envision that because that was your experience before you knew Christ. Every thought was not what pleases God, it's what was what pleases me. And so again, like I said in Sunday school, sometimes we look at the stories about the Israelites and we're like, they were really bad people, I can't believe they were that bad. And we fail to do what Thomas Watson said, which was to apply the text to ourselves and see God's condemnation of sin applying to us as well like it did here. Sometimes we might look at this and say, wow, those people before the flood were really bad. And we fail to recognize that if we go throughout our day and our thoughts are only of ourselves and only of doing what pleases us, which they should not be for a Christian, but if that characterizes our life, we're not so very different from these people on whom God's judgment fell. And so what would the response be? Well, the response in this day was, God destroyed them with the flood. The response for us would be to say, turn to Christ or turn again to Christ and say, my life should not be that way because I know the one who has called me to holiness. I know the one who has called me away from sin. My thoughts, day by day, moment by moment, should be, what pleases God, what honors God, what truths of his word ought to rule my actions and my words, and all of the different things I'm involved with. Verse 6 and 7 have a puzzling statement. The Lord was sorry he had made man, and he was grieved in his heart. And then verse 7, I am sorry that I have made them, is the reason he said, I will blot out man. This raises several questions for us about God. What does it mean for God to be grieved? What does it mean for him to be sorry? If God is all knowing, it can't mean God thought everything was going to be okay and then it sort of all fell apart. That's our experience, right? Sometimes we say, This is going to be a great trip to the zoo. And then someone starts throwing up, or everyone starts screaming about stuff, or whatever else. It falls apart because we don't anticipate what's going to happen, and we don't know what's going to happen, and we don't ultimately have the ability to make everything happen the way that we want it to happen. But what does that look like for God? God doesn't get surprised by things that he didn't see coming. God is not unable to fix bad circumstances. So why does the Bible describe it in this way? I think the simple answer would be that we might look at God who made the entire universe and think that God is way up here, inaccessible, disconnected. I mean, that's the deist idea of God, right? He winds up the clock, sets it on the shelf, and walks away. And the universe runs itself. But that's not the Christian view of God. The Christian view of God, the biblical view of God, is a God who made everything, who is exalted, but who is also personal. Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. Here we see that God is grieved and sorry. God is not surprised. God is not caught off guard. But in the same sense that the New Testament says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God, there is a sense in which God desires wants his creation to do what they were made to do. And there's also a sense in which, and we don't fully understand how this all fits together, but in in which God permits that creation not to do the things that they were originally designed to do. And trying to fit all those things together is complicated and requires a lot of thought, and I can't fully explain it to you, because to fully explain it would be to know the mind of God, And I don't think any of us can do that fully. That being said, it's not something that we can't get at all. It's just something that there are elements of which that are still difficult that we need to ponder further. We see here this idea there is sin. God's response to sin is that it is more than disappointing, it is grievous. It is contrary to the way for which he designed us to be. It is a corruption of all that was beautiful that we saw the glimpse of at the beginning of this book. What's his response? His response is not to say, I can't do anything about it. His response is to say, in verse 7, I will bring judgment. I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky. A couple of quick things to note about this: God was not saying, "I'm going to destroy everything," because it says in verse eight clearly in contrast, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God was not saying that all of the birds and plants and fish and everything else deserved judgment along with man but that in the sending of the flood that we're going to see about in the next few chapters they were going to be destroyed as well so what does that teach us not that god is unfair but that our sin has consequences beyond just what happens to me why is this important sometimes we think that the sin that we commit only affects us if i do something that's wrong and i get caught i gotta bear the consequences you know but even something simple like let's say you steal money from your company that you're working for you get caught okay consequences happen to me maybe i go to jail that doesn't just affect you that affects your family that affects the reputation of your business if you're a christian that affects the reputation of the church in the sight of those around you sometimes we look at a passage like this and we say well god's gonna punish everything Well, what did the birds and the fish and everything else do This is the fallout consequences of our sin, the ripple effect that it has on everyone else. We see an illustration of this in the person of Jonah, right? The ship was going to go down, and it wasn't just Jonah in the boat. Sin is serious, and it affects other people around us. Sin brings God's judgment. Sin is grievous to God. God did not change his mind. God is expressing in a way that we can relate to the horror of sin, the grief of seeing that which belongs to you and owes you allegiance, turning away and rejecting you, and, you know, all of these things. But even in this, we see this, this sliver of hope, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So we, we step back and we look at this whole passage. And he died, and he died, and he died. Eight times in this passage. We see the corruption of mankind. The people who are supposed to result in the godly descendant who would be the deliverer, they're going over and intermarrying with the... the pagan offspring of Cain so how is there, this ever going to ha- take place God is at the point where he says I'm going to blot them out with a massive destruction but even the context of these things we see this, this glimpse of hope in verses 1 through 3 God made it here's the design Adam and Eve keep having children in the middle of the passage Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. At the end of chapter 5, Noah will give us rest and comfort. Not the ultimate comfort, not the final comfort, not lasting comfort, but some comfort in the fact that God's going to use him to deliver the human race in the fact that in verse 8 he finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so when we look at a passage like this, we shouldn't just look at it as a list of names and how old they were and, and what, what date got put on their tombstone. And okay, that's boring, what's the point of that? We ought to look at this and see it as a connection between what has come before, this contrast in chapter 4 between the godly line of Seth and the ungodly line of Cain, what's going to come after, the result of all this buildup of sin is God's judgment, and a continuation of this thread of hope that God is going to send a deliverer, that it's not Seth because he dies, that it's not Enoch, because God takes him, that it's not Noah, because he dies, but Noah is an anticipation of that deliverer, and God uses Noah. There is this thread of hope that runs through even the darkest chapters of the Bible, and that is what I don't want you to miss. God's plan, God's purpose will prevail. The deliverer is going to come in the person of Jesus Christ, not in Noah's day, not in Abraham's day, not in the day of the prophets, but centuries later in the person of Christ... But God keeps his promises. God judges sin. God holds out hope for those who follow his plan, who walk with him, who are used by him. So where does that leave us? The world can be dark at times, but there is still beauty. We ought to rejoice when children are born. It's a sign of the fact that God's original plan is still going forward. We ought to, even if we can't fully understand it, rejoice at the fact that God takes Enoch to be with him because it shows that there is a reward for those who walk with God. We ought to try to understand what it means that there's rest or comfort in connection with Noah because Noah's clearly not perfect. We're going to see that in the coming chapters. But God used him anyway. And what all of this ultimately points to, the personal work of Christ, we ought to have that hope. We ought to rest in that hope. Even when there is death, even when there is overwhelming sin, even when it seems that God's plan is delayed or has failed, are we looking for the hope that the Bible points us toward? Let's pray. Lord, a genealogy doesn't seem like an exciting thing to look at on a Sunday morning, and there are a lot of difficult things in this section. But if we remember nothing else, Lord, help us remember this. There is hope in you despite the realities of sin and death. Help us to cling to that hope. Help us to rejoice in that hope. Help us look to the fulfillment of that hope, that Christ will return, that our faith will be vindicated, that as you have worked in the past through people like Adam and Enoch and Noah, that you will work in and through us as your people as well, that there is work to be done. Enoch lived 365 years compared to the seven, eight, nine hundred 900 years of the people around him, and he still did the work that you called him to do. Help us likewise to be faithful. Help us to follow you even if everyone else around us is not. Help us to see the beauty of your creation, broken and flawed and marred as it is even today. And help us to trust in Christ. Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.